Hope everybody is refreshed for that extra night of hour of sleep, not night of sleep that you got uh, this this uh, this week. Uh, how many of y'all went through a long, diligent, hardworking prog- process to figure out what you're going to wear today? Why are you wearing what you're wearing? If you all changed your clothes more than once, raise your hand. All right, all right. Now I didn't see any man hands go up. All right, that's typically a pretty simple process. If it smells okay and you can shake out the wrinkles, then then, then it works, you know. But when it comes to clothes I, 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 and what we're going to wear, there are some things that either consciously or subconsciously that we go through uh, when making that decision. So think about it like this. We, we, we want to know that it meets a need. You're, you're going to put on something and it's going to meet a need, all right? You need to have clothes on before you leave the house. We teach our children that, all right? They go out without a diaper. We bring them back in. We put clothes on them. We tell them in America, this is how we live, all right? So we teach our kids that. It meets a need. Also, it serves a purpose. It's cold outside or it's warm outside or it's wet outside. All those elements play into what you're going to wear. Colors of the, the season play into what you're going to wear and fit into that schema. Uh, also, it's going to make a statement. Hopefully, it's the same statement that you want it to make, it makes, all right, whenever you pick out what you're going to wear. Hopefully, other people aren't looking at you saying that statement isn't the statement that you wanted to make. And I got all kinds of examples of flowing through my mind, but I'll save our time on that one. Uh, but also, it fits. All right, you go into your closet, you got this wardrobe full of stuff, and you're looking for what does all those things, but also what fits. And you might have a section of your closet of these are the things that used to fit that one day may fit again if I get on the right diet or something like that. And you're not going to dare give them up because you might be there back like you were at 17 again one day. I I, I don't know. So you're looking for things like that. We also, believe it or not, again, consciously or subconsciously, look through this same criteria when choosing our faith, our religion. Think about it. Does it meet a need? We all have a need for a relationship with God. You can go to the deepest, darkest tribe of Africa and you can find animistic beliefs going on that have been going on for centuries upon centuries of them seeking to get with God. You can go to the Far East and find people seeking to get with God. You can come to America and you can find us being our own God or trying to find out who God is and asking those deep questions of life. So we need a God. Does God meet a need in your life? Serves a purpose. God was about a purpose why am I here? It was one of the big questions of life. Why do I exist? Why did God give me another day? Hopefully, your relationship with God will answer that question for your life. If He doesn't, if it doesn't, you need to lean in a little further, listen a little closer, because I believe God does answer that. What is my reason for living? Hopefully, it makes a statement. Now, hopefully, again, like the statement you want to make with the clothes that you picked out today, hopefully the statement that you're making with your faith is the statement that your faith makes, all right? Now, let me just give you an example. You might say, I'm a Christian, but you might live like the devil. And if that is the case, you can say, I'm a Christian all day long, but really, are you? Question mark, okay? For example, Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your what for one another. What is it? 
love for one another. All right, so if you, have, if you don't have love, if you're full of hatred and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and all that kind of stuff, you're not looking too much like the faith brand or whatever that you claim. And again, I'm drawing the assumption that it's, it's Christianity if you're here today. So it makes a statement and also it fits. Hopefully your faith fits. Now, if you are a middle child like I was growing up, you got the hand-me-down clothes, all right? And my children get, got the same, are getting the same treatment. It's just a good, efficient way to do it. But as a middle child, going to the store and being able to pick out something off the shelf for yourself, it, is su- it was such a thrilling experience. I hope when it comes to your faith, again, that you are owning your own faith. It's not the hand-me-down faith from mom and dad, and this is the way dad told me to believe, or this is the way mom taught me to believe, or this is the way everyone believes in my family or my story. Hopefully you've backed away from that, you've, you've broken that down a little bit, and you are truly, in every sense of the word, owning your faith. But I have to say this. There's one thing missing from this paradigm, not about clothes, but about choosing your faith, and don't, don't get me wrong, choosing your faith isn't just like going around. Even Joshua talked about, choose you this day whom you will serve. In Joshua 24, one of the last statements he makes, one of his most famous statements that he makes about he and his family. So choosing your faith is something that you will go through in life. But here's another question. Is it truth? Now, again, we live in a day and age where truth is relative. There are no absolute truths. You know, everything is subject and everything is subject to what I want it to be. And so we kind of got this kind of faded gray kind of question out there, what is truth? We don't ask that. That's not a commonly asked question, is this truth? But I would hope and pray that you have so owned your faith, so dove into this, that you're not basing it on some relatively hopeful, so kind of believe, so kind of faith, but hopefully you really, 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 really have dove into this. And that's what the study through Hebrews hopefully is going to help us all do, is to truly get at the nuts and the bolts to go deep, sometimes so deep I feel like I'm drowning. Uh, I'm sure a mist in the pulpit creates only a fog in the pew. So I I hope today that there's not a fog through this series of of messages, but I, I hope that there's some clarity that comes to your faith. That you're owning your faith, believing your faith, living your faith out. Now, if you want to understand uh, the process we're going through, we've talked last week and this week about other religions out there, okay? But we've juxtaposed them next to the Christian faith, the biblical faith uh, of Christianity. Now, that's important. Now, it's not our goal to to put all of our emphasis way over here and studying the other religions of the world, although there's, there's definitely warrant to that. There's an importance of that. But we are trying to put them next to, line them up next to Christianity and see what is best. It's kind of like studying. Uh, I've heard this. I've, I've never uh, received this kind of training. But I heard that bankers, when they're studying counterfeit currency, they don't study as much the counterfeit currency as they study the real authentic currency. They want to touch it. They want to feel it. They want to see the different marks, the different elements to that currency. And so today, we're not trying to study the counterfeit. We're trying to study the real thing, but we're just doing it uh, side by side. 
Last week we talked about Hebrews Manifest. I want us to see this again. I want it to be branded on your mind and on your heart that this is what the message, the central message of Hebrews is saying to us. And this is the manifest, all right? Say it, read it out loud with me. Jesus Christ is sufficient, supreme, and holds salvation for the entire world. Now, that's an important thing to really grab a hold of. Again, not just because I told you that, but because you have truly dove into this. You're truly owning your faith. The sufficiency of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, and that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the one who has hope, has life, has direction for your life both now and in, into, the, into the future. Now, Again, I'm doing a lot of reviewing just to catch anybody that we missed last week up to speed because there is one very important linchpin, if you will, that, that puts this on the map, that makes Jesus Christ this, okay? Because I'm sure that Buddha was a good teacher. I'm sure that uh, Muhammad was a good communicator. I, I'm sure that, that that was a part of that. Jesus Christ was that too. But what makes him different? The linchpin is that Jesus Christ was more than a good communicator, miracle maker, all those things. He was the, he is the high priest. Hang on to that. That's important to the big cosmic world in which we live in, okay? That, that's important that we understand and embrace that Jesus Christ is the high priest both now and, and forever. Now, if you have your Bibles, look at Hebrews chapter 5. That whole phrase, that whole title of Jesus being high priest is only repeated 16 times in 13 chapters. So it is a major theme of, of the writing of Hebrews. But in chapter 5, verse 1, we get that picture of what a priest or a high priest is supposed to do. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, For every high priest chosen, and again, there's a lot of things that I, can't, I don't have time to go into, but that, that phrase there is important. From among men is appointed, listen to this, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. I could not have put it any more succinct than that. You want to know what a high priest does? He acts on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, that's important because I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm an epiphany for you today, but you're not perfect either. And we're a bunch of crackpots in this room right now, but we have a perfect God. Now, how does imperfection connect with perfection? It doesn't happen. You can't have imperfection with perfection unless you have a high priest. A high priest is so critical to this because he serves on behalf of men in relation to God. That is the thing. That's the title. That's the position that Jesus holds above all other religion, faith leaders, movement makers in the entire world. It is significant. Now, last week we talked... Um, uh, but let me, let me go on and read some other verses. Verse 5 and, and, and following here. Uh, verse 5 and 6. It says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So God appointed him to this position. 
And he says also in another place, you are the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to come to Melchizedek in a moment, and it's going to be a pretty important uh, thing. But here, let's talk about real quickly what we learned last week about the high priest. The high priest, uh, okay, Christ as the high priest, he was appointed by God as the high priest, all right? We just read that. You just read it. I read it. It's there, okay? Also, he's the perfect high priest. Not anybody else could quite fall into that category of perfection. Jesus Christ did. He's the perfect high priest. Forever high priest. He didn't, had no expiration to this. All other high priests up until this day, they, when they died, they expired, okay? The term limited out, okay? And then, and then we also realize he's a tender, sympathetic, compassionate high priest. That's, a, that's kind of a, that's a good thing, okay? Because when I think of high priest, when I think of God, I think of, ooh, beat me with a stick, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I can't get to God. God, No, we have a tender, sympathetic, compassionate high priest. Big game changer, okay? Also, he reigns on the throne of God, of God as high priest. So he, to this day, is on the throne in heaven reigning as high priest. All the things that we talked about last week. Last week we talked about two religions that were born post-Christianity's birth. Okay, 500 A.D. Islam kind of came on the scene through Muhammad. And then Mormonism didn't come on the scene until 19th century. Again, talked about that last week. This week we're going to talk about religions that predated Christianity. Judaism. All right, Judaism obviously begins the world in, in, in many fashions. The world was already going for a long time and there were already religions being expressed. You can see that in the Tower of Babel. But there's something that happens around 2091 B.C. when Abram becomes Abraham and a nation is born. All right, Big, big kind of date to, uh, to remember. Pantheism, pantheism is a religion that you're not going to go down, fi- down 540 and see a church on the side of the street that says... First Church of Pantheism, okay? We'll come to that in a moment. That's more of a philosophy than it is just a single identity. But I want to talk about these two, all right? First of all, I want to talk about, again, in light of Hebrews, in light of Jesus being the high priest, how that makes a difference in me and hopefully makes a difference in you as to why you couldn't be a Muslim, a Mormon, and today, why you couldn't be a Jew, all right? Why I can't be a Jew when I look at this is because Christ as my high priest completes the Jewish faith. All right? Now, let me talk about the positives because I'm trying to get positive to every religious movement here. So here's a couple of positives. Judaism shares a strong moral base, okay? They're based on the Old Testament. We get a lot of our morals. We get a lot of our fabrics in our culture based on morals of the, of the Ten Commandments. Just go there. All right, don't kill, don't steal, don't cheat on your wife, don't cut. All those things, honor father and mother, those are things that make a good society. Those came from Judaism. That's a good thing, all right? Now, a study was done, again, by Barna in his book, The Seven Faith Tribes of America, and he talks about in there when interviewing Jews, how many of y'all take serious your faith? This is an interesting, sad study. A highest priority in their life, only 2% mention their faith. That was right next to the atheists and agnostics. So you can't necessarily say that the Judaism of America today is a really strong, vibrant, moral fabric uh, in, inside of them. But it's, it's there, a part of their DNA uh, of old. Number two, national patriotism to the nation of Israel. Now, there are more Jews who live in America today than live in Israel. But you 
corner any Jew in America, and they're probably going to point back to the nation of Israel being a high priority as God giving them the land of Cana is a promised land, and they'll fight, they'll send money, they'll do whatever. I've even met some Jews who moved. When I was in Jerusalem one time, uh, I, I met some Jews from America who had moved back because they believed in the patriotism. Now, we, as followers of Jesus, hopefully I can include you in that circle, as followers of Jesus, we can identify with this, the moral fabric of the Old Testament, the patriotism of the nation of Israel, as that's a, that's a nation given by God to that land, okay? I'm, I'm with you. I'm tracking with the Jews at this point. At that point, we separate. There's not a whole lot that brings us together after that. There's a whole lot that separates us. In fact, from, the, from their historical book, the Tonados Jesu, it says this about Jesus, that he was not the Messiah, but he was the bastard child of a seduced Mary who later grew up and obtained some kind of sorcery powers and he lived out his life. And that was it. They don't see him as the Messiah. They don't see him as the answer or, or anything like that. Well, they certainly don't see him as the high priest because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And if you go all the way back to the book of Numbers, whenever God was establishing the Levitical priesthood, and again, I told you last week, just get ready, put on your swimsuits and your life jackets. We're diving in some deep stuff today. Uh, in the sense that we're going through the old, whole Old Testament here in about five minutes. In the sense that when God established the Jewish nation, He also established a worship system, a sacrificial system, and He put, He selected out of all of the tribes of, uh, of Israel the tribe of the Levites, the Levitical priesthood. Those would be the ones who would go into the temple. Those would be the ones who would go into the Holy of Holies. Those would be the ones that you would get your high priest from. Jesus wasn't, wasn't from the tribe of the Levites. He was from the tribe of Judah. He couldn't even make it past the, 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 the tents or the curtains inside. the. He, he couldn't ha- take on a responsibility even if he was the best of Jews. So he did not qualify under the Levitical system. He did not come in under the Levitical system, as you read just a few moments ago from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, or excuse me, verse 6. Now we also read again in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. Having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is important. Who's that dude? All right, you might be asking. Because he dates way back to Genesis chapter 14. He dates before the nation of Israel. He dates before the Levitical priesthood. He dates way back before any of that was ever established, before Abram was ever called Abraham, and before they were ever a nation. He was even a Gentile of all things. And as Melchizedek becomes is this priest, and he is also, by the way, he's not only a priest, he's also a king. You can read all of this in Genesis 14. He was the king of the city and the priest of the city of Salem. They didn't believe in separation of church and state, clearly. A priest and a king all tied up in one person. And here's Melchizedek, and he is receiving offerings from Abram. Interesting. Again, a lot more to this to come in the weeks ahead. But just hang on to this because Jesus was not under the Levitical system. He might have been a Jew in the flesh, but he was not a Jew in in the priesthood. He was a Gentile, actually, under the order of Melchizedek. It says it about four different times in Hebrews. You only find Melchizedek mentioned ten times in Scripture, eight different times are in Hebrews alone. So we get the full understanding of uh, of how and what God was doing throughout this entire time. Now, let me just give you real quickly 
two points that just helped me nail down, put it in there, that why I believe that the Jewish faith started it, but Christianity completes it. All right? Here it is. Number one, Christ, if we accept Him as high priest, Christ offers the final redemption. All right? Now, we all need to have this imperfection thing fixed in us. We all need to have our sins taken care of. All right? It's a, it's a debt we owe. Okay? We can't pay it. we got a problem here. Jesus Christ, as the high priest, offers the final redemption. You got your Bible? So fully look at, at chapter 9. As you turn to chapter 9, realize this, that there has not been a sacrifice made by the Jewish people since A.D. 70. That's when the Romans came in, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, four major religions, the Roman Empire, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all find that as one of the holiest places on earth. All right? It's a, it's a holy, sacred place. Now hang with me on that. Because if you come here, there's not been a, sacrificial, uh, not been a sacrifice made in Judaism since then, since Jesus was on the earth. So that means in every day there were sacrifices. That means in every year there were sacrifices. Everybody, if Judaism is correct, everybody since the time of Christ, they have died, lived and died without any atonement for their sins. There is no hope for anybody until that Jewish system is reestablished on that very disputed Dome of the Rock. So under the Jewish system, we're in trouble. All right? But here, I want to say, that's not a big deal anymore because Jesus completes the final redemption. Chapter 9, verse 11. Um, But Christ appeared as the high priest. There it is again. Of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by the hands, that is, not of, uh, of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of bloods of goats and calves. Okay, that's the old Jewish Levitical priesthood sacrificial system. But how did he do it? By means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Eternal, forever, never ending. It's always going to go on. It's never going to die. That's the difference. Is I don't, I'm not dogging Judaism. I'm just saying Christianity completes it completes the other half of the story, tells the rest of the story. But let me tell you another thing that kind of drives it home for me is Christ as high priest establishes a new and final covenant. So he does the final sacrifice, but also, listen, he establishes a new covenant. Now that's important, okay? A covenant is a relationship-based agreement. We do contracts in America. What does a contract do? A contract protects me from you. All right? A covenant is more of a relational agreement. I'm in a relationship not looking out for my own interests. That's the contract. I'm in a relationship with you in an agreement with you looking out for your interest and you're looking out for mine. You want covenants, not contracts. All right? That's why I agree with the covenant marriage. Um, So here we go. We, We move into this whole new covenant thing that comes into play here. And Jesus Christ establishes a new covenant. The old one is insufficient. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, doesn't quite cut it. It doesn't, it doesn't cover everything. Go back to chapter 8, verse 6. But as, as it is uh, Christ 
has obtained a ministry, verse, chapter 8, verse 6, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant. He mediates is better. Since he enacted on better promises, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the first covenant would have been sufficient and complete, fine, we wouldn't need the second one. But we need the second one. Verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete, growing old, is, is ready to vanish away. Now chapter 9, verse 15. All this is all in context. I'm just hitting the high points. Verse, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator. There's that key phrase, that key role, that, that part that he plays of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive promised eternal inheritance since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now here's, here, here's the skinny of this. You and I have both messed up. We need somebody to fix our mess-ups. Mess-ups called sin separates us from God. Jesus Christ came and died, was the final redemption. And when he did that, he establishes a relationship covenant between us. And we enter into that relationship covenant, and it's going to go on forever. It nullifies the old. That's why I'm saying that Jesus Christ completes, completes the story of the Old Testament. All right, let's go on to number two. Why I cannot be a pantheist. Now, again, you're not going to find a lot of pantheism around here, but here, here's, here's, here's a statement. Because as the high priest, Christ is the only one who has access to the atonement of sins. All right? Again, atonement is that big fancy church word that just basically means taking care of it. He took care of my mess-ups. Jesus Christ is the only one who's able to do that. Now, pantheist, let's talk about that real quickly. Pantheist believe this. God is all and all is God. That's pretty much it. You don't find very many pantheist churches out there because they're not. You're not going to find a whole lot of religious books because you don't need them. Everything is God. You're God, I'm God, there's a little God in all of us, there's a little God around there. Hinduism comes out of this, all right? Pantheism, Buddhism comes out of this. There's a whole lot of religious faiths that come out of this. Uh, um, Confucius, uh, New Age, Kabbalah, Transcendental Meditation, Metaphysics, all comes, come birth from this pantheistic view on, on life. Now, Hinduism, for example... Uh, and by the way, there's a whole lot of Hinduism that's kind of coming into Northwest Arkansas, and we welcome them and embrace them. About 400 to 500 Asian uh, uh, people from, a, a, from an Asian faith, from most of them being, being Hindu. I welcome them, embrace them, have made great friends with them. But here's the problem. Don't think of somebody as the color of their skin, as a pantheist. Don't think of that. Don't think of it as anything. Pantheism is pervading our culture. It's in our education. Listen, I have been in a coffee shop here in northwest Arkansas, not very far from here, and walked up on a study between Christians on the topic of metaphysics. Metaphysics. The whole idea that, uh, that there's a little God inside of all of us. Meg Ryan said it like this. 
She said, Eastern thought, Western mysticism, I really dig the whole Hindu pantheon. I just pull from all kinds of different things. See, East has met West. Even though this originated in the East, it is very much alive and well in the West. The most well-known Eastern doctor who's, or Western doctor who's from the East, Deepak Chopra, is probably the foremost spokesman uh, that a, a lot of people are reading from today. Let me just read one of his quotes that gets to the heart of it. Success in life could be defined as the continued expansion of happiness and the progressive re- realization of worthy goals. Now, I agree with that statement. Let's keep going. Even in the experience of all these things, we will remain unfulfilled. I agree with that. If all you are are successful, then that's not enough. All right? Unless we nurture the seeds of divinity inside us. In reality, we are divinity in disguise, and the gods and the goddesses are an embryo within us seeking to be fully materialized. See, the thing about this whole pantheism is you can be a Christian and be a pantheist. You... Hinduism will allow you to be a Buddhist and a Muslim and a Christian and you can still be a Hindu. It it, it just washes everything. There's no borders. There's no controls because, hey, by the way, you're God. There's a little God and goddess in all of us. And what we need to do is figure out how to raise that up, that consciousness, as Buddhism would call it, that nirvana. When you achieve nirvana, then you have achieved that. And so you have all of these beliefs that are throughout our culture. Now, let me give you the positives. These are true positives. This, this turn towards this pantheistic view has done this. Spirituality is now acceptable and in vogue again. All right? Now, that's just the way it is. I grew up in a day when God was out of the schools and atheism was on the rise and communism was there and, and all that. Not, not, now, spirituality is back. You can have your spirituality and I can have my spirituality and we can all be spiritual and we can all talk spiritual talk. It's a little deeper than that. It means a little bit more than that. That's just the beginning. Here's the second thing. It's created a high view of self. Obviously, if there's a little goddess inside of all your little girls, then you're going to think that your little girl's a goddess or that you're a goddess or that you're a god. There's a little problem with that. Is because this doesn't have a whole lot of truth against against Scripture, because it creates this 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 false sense that you're God. And here's what it does. In, in short, it makes you okay when you're okay with you. Period. As long as I feel good about myself, as long as I have a good positive self-image, and there's nothing wrong with a positive self-image. What's it built on? The God inside of you. Or is it built on the fact that the God of the universe chose to love you through His Son, Jesus Christ, and to give everything He could to pursue you and chase you and fight for you and die for you? Or is it built on the little goddess embryo inside of you? Be careful. There's a whole lot of subtlety that's slipping into churches, into groups that are out there, and that is extremely, extremely dangerous. Here's a couple of things that I want us to see about Christ as our high priest. Realize this. We don't need the little God-Goddess kind of battle in the mind going on because Jesus Christ once and for all established a relationship with us. Once and for all. Follow along. I want you to read these verses with me 
Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. When I come to the big bold print, you read that out loud, okay? He has no need, like these high priests, to offer sacrifices daily since he did this when he offered up himself, all right? Hebrews 9, 12. He entered into the holy places, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 10, 10. And by that they will, uh, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Listen, you don't need a new methodology. You don't need a new belief. You don't need a new philosophy. You don't need, you just, I need to just connect with the high priest. The high priest once and for all took care of my problems. That's why I come back to the Hebrew manifest is that Jesus Christ is sufficient, is supreme, and holds salvation for the world. All right? Number two. Why I can't be a pantheist is that Christ as high priest is supreme over all creation and spirit beings. He is supreme over them all. Listen, if there, let's just for giggles say that there's an embryo of deity inside of every one of us. All right? Let's just pretend for a moment. I also know that I'm imperfect. I also know that you're imperfect. If you don't know that, talk to the person again next to you. There's a lot of imperfection. We're all striving to be better. All, but, but will I ever be God? Listen, if I ever allow myself to think that I am God, then I am telling you that I'm perfect. And I'm not perfect and I will never be perfect. I wouldn't trust my best day on planet earth to get me to deity. My best day, my best attitude, the most generous, I wouldn't trust it at all. Because why? Because I'm never going to achieve deity. And if there's any spirit form out there that is inferior, and every one of them are inferior to God, then who is Jesus? How does he fit into this? He is superior as well. Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Go back there. And again, I know we're all over the page today because the whole high priest fits into the whole thing. It says, putting everything in subjection to him, verse 8, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Everything is subject to Jesus Christ. That means even the little deity embryo inside of me is subject to Jesus Christ. And there's not an embryo of deity inside of me, I promise. All right? But even the best of me, it's all subject to Jesus Christ. So that's why I can't trust myself. I've got to trust in Jesus Christ as the, as the Savior of my life. And in verse 17, Therefore he had, uh, he had to be made like the brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I love that statement. I had to read it. Because how does he describe our high priest? He's merciful and he's faithful. Now, I wish to God that I could tell you today, stand up here and say, listen, if you'll go water that little seed of deity inside of you, you'll become God. If you'll just think more highly of yourself, you'll be okay. And God's going to make you a little God. But He doesn't. What He does promise is you'll not be a God, but you'll make you a priest. That's a pretty big thing. Because if Jesus is the high priest and I can be a priest, 
That's trading up. And, and, and where I base this on is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and 5. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. And you are living stones that God is building into spiritual temple. What's more, you are His holy priest. How did we get there? How did I, how did I become a priest? Through, what's this? The mediation of Jesus Christ. Listen, this world doesn't need you to think of yourself as a little God. This world needs you to be the priest that God has called you to be. Are you living like a priest? Have you ever thought of yourself as a priest? If you're a follower of Jesus today, you need to just adopt the title priest because that's what God has made you. Through Jesus Christ, through a relationship with Him. That's what, well, you know what that means? That means you don't need me. You really don't need Mike McDaniel. You are a priest through Jesus Christ. You can pray. You can seek God. You can read this book. God can speak to you. God can be in a relationship with you. You can intercede for your sick relatives. You can pray for your neighbors. You, you, can, you can engage God Himself. Not because you're God, but because He made you a priest. So my question to the Christians in this room today, are you living like a priest? Are you connecting in relationship with God? Are you interceding on behalf? And I want to say to anybody in this room, if you've never given your life to Jesus, let Him be your high priest. Let Him make you a priest so you can connect with Him. Would you pray with me? here today and you're a believer you're a follower of Jesus you're absolutely committed to him being your high priest my question are you living like a priest because that's the role he's called you to he's called you to walk holy like a priest he's called you to, to intercede for others like a priest he's called you to be in his word to let it change your life like a priest would. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know what it means to be a priest. For some of us, that may mean rearranging our life completely. Who calls the shots? Don't try to be a God. Surrender the universe back to the God of the universe. And you be a priest. Father God, this time and place, I pray that you will call out and make many priests. You are the high priest. You will forever be the high priest. You are the one who sealed the deal. You're the one who paid the price. You're the one who established a new covenant. You're the one. You're the one who completes the faith. And then, Lord, you don't make us gods. You make us priests. And so, Father, I pray that in this room today there will be many priests praying for the people on their right and on their left, interceding for their children. Oh, to God, what we need in our families are priests. What we need in our schools are priests. What we need in our jobs are priests, interceding and seeking your face. Lord, if there's anyone not know you today, may they have the boldness, the courage to step out, come down this aisle, take me by the hand, or one of our pastors by the hand just say, I want to be a priest to the high priest.
Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing with us?